Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. This episode features the second part of my conversation with the poet and art writer Lisa Robertson, and we focus on her debut novel, The Baudelaire Fractal, which was published by Coach House Books in 2020. Chronicling a writer's eking out of a life in Paris in the 1980s, the book is a kaleidoscopic portrait of a young woman's intellectual awakening, elegantly devising ways to represent the parts of consciousness that would otherwise go unspoken. This is achieved through a remarkable collaboration between language and architecture. Much in the way that Charles Baudelaire and Walter Benjamin drew out their ideas of modern life from a close analysis of Parisian arcades, Robertson looks at the hotel and its interiors to help reveal the many facets of her protagonist's mind. Robertson lives in the French countryside in a large stone house, which is where I reached her on Zoom to record our conversation. So here it is, part two of my interview with the poet Lisa Robertson. I hope you enjoy it. The last time we spoke, I kind of felt like there were more questions I could have asked about the relationships between writing and architecture as you see it. And in an, in a in a kind of follow-up email, you mentioned that the novel, The Baudelaire Fractal, was architecturally structured as a sequence of rooms, be they yes. ho- hotel rooms or maids' rooms. Each chapter is formed around the description of a room, then sets out to inhabit the room with the thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm intrigued by that and what that means. Um, in a really pragmatic and kind of technical way, a string of rooms was a way to construct a narrative, which rather than being developmental and ordered around uh, some sort of crisis that could then be um, dealt with and solved, there would just be the seriality of room after room. And Part of my realization that I could use rooms to structure the narrative was a very simple transposition from my um, experience as a poet and the spatial organization of the poem. You're familiar, of course, with the term stanza, and uh, you likely also know that it simply means room. 
I don't know Italian, but it's the kind of truism that gets repeated uh, in creative writing classes, maybe. Actually, I haven't really taken creative writing classes. Let's say I repeat it when I'm teaching creative writing <laughs> classes. <laughs> so you have a, 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 a simple um, spatial device suggesting a, a kind of formal closure. And then you can put things in that space. And then when you finished with that space, you move on to a similar space. So my, the chapters in the Baudelaire fractal were, were conceived in a stanzaic manner. There's a couple of other things I could say about that. A, a big difference, of course, between um, my use of hotel rooms and um, Benjamin's use of arcades is the fact of gender and the gendered experience of space. When you're a young woman in any city, there is, uh, and even when you're not necessarily young, um, there's, uh, there can be a, a difficulty in inhabiting public space uh, because of the way that uh, female bodies get sexualized in public space. And so it's, it's one of the um, difficulties if you're traveling, for example, as a young woman, how to quickly learn those codes and learn how to sort out um, how to occupy or not occupy certain spaces. And a lot of the um, description in the Baudelaire fractal was based on um, um, descriptions which I wrote in my diaries when I was a young woman first traveling in Europe in the early to mid 80s. And in those diaries, I made very, very detailed descriptions of the hotel rooms I stayed in. I think because at the time I hadn't really stayed in very many hotels in my life. My family were not, we were not big travelers. And if we did travel, it was very typically to stay with friends. Um, I guess there might have been the occasional motel room in my childhood. But there was something very exotic for me as a young woman going to Europe, um, checking into these kind of shabby, cheap hotels. The Canadian dollar was quite strong at the time. So you could get a, you know, kind of marginally adequate room for um, under what was then $10 Canadian. And so it was only a couple dollars more than staying in a hostel, for example. Um, and then you have privacy. So I was fascinated in reading back through my old journals and reading the detail of description of those spaces. Um, it was, I'm not sure why I described them in such detail then. Um, you know, what the mat on the floor was like, you know, what was the view through the window, uh, what was on the breakfast tray, what was in the drawer of the little table beside the bed, etc. I I made extremely detailed um, um, descriptions of all of that. So it occurred to me when I was rereading these, you know, 35 years later, I guess, 
um, with a kind of uh, mystified feeling because you don't always remember 35 years later why you did what you did. So there's an estrangement that, that can make the old material fascinating. I thought, wow, I have these descriptions and um, I can make use of them to put um, new thinking in. So I could make a kind of amalgam, a, a, a hybrid, a splice of these actual descriptions of actual spaces and um, trains of thought, which um, were absolutely not typical to me at that time in my life, in my, uh, in my early 20s, um, but which are now. So I had these spaces ready-made. And um, as I began to re-inhabit them um, through the point of view of this very fictive character whose name is Hazel Brown, which is to say not, a, not from the point of view of my own youth, um, several realizations, which are not really all that complex, but which became quite generative, um, occurred to me. And one is that um, the hotel room is, it's not exactly a private space. It has uh, very few or none of the um, traits of um, domesticity, domestic space, which is very typically gendered in the feminine. Um, but it's not public space really either because the, uh, the transactional um, relationships, gazes, et cetera, of strangers are, are not present um, physically in the room. So the hotel room became this interesting uh, in-between zone, a kind of uh, um, threshold or liminal site. Um, where the young girl could, within the privacy of that room, experience a freedom, which um, an intellectual freedom and a, and a physical freedom, which typically she would not be able to access either on the streets, uh, nor in nor in uh, the home space. The the you know rented apartment, the family house, whatever. Um, so I became really fascinated with the potential of the hotel room to signify uh, a, a temporary zone of liberty for um, a young woman's thinking and intellectual experience. She's inhabiting that room on her own terms and not either on the ter terms that are organized according to uh, power and um, the opacities and difficulties um, of, that, of that power, which can result in, in violence um, at times on the street in the city. Mm. There's other spaces in the hotel that seem to act as analogies for a certain state of mind or a moment of realization or a moment 
in which an idea is first conceived. One of them is the courtyard mm. of the hotel. And there's a passage here I wanted to read. It's of the main character, Hazel Brown, in her room, looking across a court, and she sees a boy um, across the court looking out his window, and they make eye contact, and then the description continues. In fact, the inside court was a sea in the way it combined so many separate things in a subtly swirling, rocking motion to make them of a single encompassing element. The shared gaze through the humid court inaugurated in me a series of concepts I could not at that time fully recognize. And just reading that, for me, I think, in a way, brings me into a certain understanding of what that that moment of realization may have been for the main character, but not through, not through it, the the language. It's through the imagination of the space that I can start to begin mm-hmm. to grasp what she means, and I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated when mm-hmm. writers are able to use descriptions of form or architectural space to start to gesture at a certain sensation or a certain way of thinking or a certain um, kind of cusp of understanding that actually Mm -hmm. eludes language itself. And so Mm -hmm. here it feels like as an author, you're working in partnership with architecture to to begin to describe uh, a complex moment, which is the moment on the cusp of, I guess, the squirrel awakening in a way. It's a, it's an intellectual awakening. Uh, we should specify for somebody who hasn't read the book. And just to continue with this point about the nature of the hotel as being in a way kind of sanctuary, it's still an urban space to a certain degree, but um, uh, a space that is safe from um, the threats of the street that may present themselves to uh, a woman um, flanner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, there's another, so we have this kind of courtyard, this moment in this courtyard looking out of the window. Um, and then there's another device, which is the stair, where we kind of mm-hmm. are brought a little bit closer to what kind of intellectual awakening might be going on. And I wondered if, um, uh, if you wouldn't mind indulging me and allowing me to read that chapter, that um, passage as well. Um, so just for listeners to kind of uh, contextualize this this passage, it's I think when Hazel Brown is this standing, is this <laughs> she won't she won't let me. This is. <laughs> Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to carry my computer to sure. the top floor and shut the door. As you're moving through your house, can you describe it to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, speaking of stairways, I'm mm-hmm. coming up this the the scary pink stairway. It's it's three stories, and each. Floor is one um, pretty big open space. Um, the floor with our bedroom, we've made a 
a sliding pocket door so we can, that's very wide, so we can close it off if we want to. But basically, although this house is super old, it's um, a house that was constructed on a ruin, um, which then has been through centuries of renovation since uh, that construction. So the ruin is um, that it's a probably 12th century uh, dungeon or fortified tower. Um, so it has no internal structure. The structure is the four walls, which are extremely thick um, flint um, that taper a bit as you, know, as you go up. Um, and so what's interesting about that is that um, although it's really ancient and especially on the ground floor, it really does have a moody medieval feel. It has the openness of living in a loft, in a stack of loft spaces. Mm. And in, in our uh, redesigning of the space, we could just um, treat it like that. You know? hmm. So going back to this passage, and this device of the stair and this this idea that as an author, as a writer, you're working um, in partnership with with architecture to, to to gesture towards feelings that evade language. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in this moment in the stair where the main character, Hazel Brown, is ascending um, behind a boy who she's about to sleep with. I'm just trying to find the best place to start. You know, an ordinary girl now extraordinarily climbing a strange stair in mid-afternoon. Susceptibility expanded continuously in my chest as I climbed so that I mistook it for desire, though I did then believe that it was desire that I felt. Internally, to myself, I said words like passion, and I believed that I believed in that gravitas. What was desire then, and what is it now? A kind of poetry, maybe. A body of poetry. The opposite of identity. What I wanted ardently was poetry, and to me this expansive afternoon felt like poetry ought to feel. The entire world, everything it would be possible for me to experience in my life, the anticipation of each kiss and its singularity and rhythm, each angular, difficult, sparkling philosophy, each impersonal room, rooms that would structure my thought and my ambitions, opened into our shadowy and eager ascent. Reader, I am still in that stairwell as I write this. I will never leave it. There's something so powerful about that passage for me. I mean, we've all been in the throes of ecstasy with someone before, uh, or I can only assume the majority of us have. And hopefully if we, we've all been. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we all, we've all been, or at least we've all, we all have the capacity to fantasize and long for and um, are all beings full of desire. And it's that sensation of desire and anticipation that you capture so effectively in this ascent of a stair and then it's it's analogy to the the poet's impulse or the poet's desire 
that I find so intriguing. And I mean, I'm not sure where the conversation goes from there, except to point out yet another example of the way in which the poet or the, the writer begins to use architecture to use the device in this case of the stair to, to point at something that uh, she can't actually describe. I'm interested in this other kind of awareness that opens up during the act of description. And you've said elsewhere in the book, or the character has explained elsewhere in the book, um, that uh, she's felt like it's the room that writes. Mm. And that she simply lends the room her pronoun, her I. Mm. Um, and then in an interview you gave, um, you've, you've noted that description, quote, is a form of life. As a, it's a doubling of life, a gift to enlarge and transform the lives of others. For me, I'm intrigued by, I guess, the, the, the mode of awareness when the room takes on a certain liveliness or becomes animate or has a kind of autonomy or something, and that the, the describer is simply the conduit for that. Mm-hmm. There's something quite magical and surreal about description in that mode. Um, I should let you know that that wasn't really my idea. Mm. Um, I was, when I was working on that novel, I was reading uh, a lot of material about Baudelaire and his life and a lot of it by friends of his, colleagues of his, much of it written shortly after his death, um, like by Nadar, the photographer, um, Bonville, who was a poet, who was a very close friend of his. And uh, Bonville described Baudelaire's apartment when Mm -hmm. he was a still young, wealthy guy before his family um, stripped him of his inheritance. And he lived in uh in 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 posh but faded grandeur um in an old hotel particulier on the um Ile Saint-Louis and Bonville describes in really close detail the decoration of the space and he has a long passage where he describes Baudelaire's writing table Yes. Well, it's his, really, it's only table. He clears it between uses. So it's a table he receives friends at, that he eats at, and that he writes at. And it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a Baroque um, furnishing, and so it's not rectilinear. It's, um, it's um, designed according to some sort of uh, very, 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 active set of, uh, of, of irregular curves. Um, you could almost imagine that this was a table that Bernard Cash uh, 
designed <laughs> something like this. Um, and Bonville, in describing Baudelaire's table and its curves and the relationship to the body of the curves, etc., says that he believes it was the table that wrote the poems in Les Fleurs du Mal. I have the line. That so you, it's gorgeous. Mm. Yeah, you, you wrote, it's a table contrived so that no matter how one sat at it, the body found itself supported, held softly with no rigidity. Bonville said he believed the table itself was an element in the composition of Florida Mel. So, so I just took that and exaggerated it, really. I mean, it's a very attractive um, um, idea to me, and why not uh, push it as far as you can? <laughs> Maybe we could talk more about furnishing then. Mm -hmm. um, there's an essay by Poe. I guess um, he's explaining a philosophy of furnishing. Yeah, yeah. Edgar Allan Poe, I mean, most listeners will know him as uh, um, the grandfather of detective fiction. But this one essay by him about his ideas about interior design uh, might come as a surprise. I mean, he's also in the bibliography for this book. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about that essay about this idea of furnishing and its importance yeah. in yeah. writing? Well, I should say I should say that Baudelaire was the um, first and continues to be the main French translator of uh, Poe's work. So Baudelaire was highly influenced by Poe, and in fact, in rereading this essay you're describing, the Poe essay you're describing. Um, I became aware that um, it seemed that Baudelaire had decorated his own apartment uh, following Poe's advice, and maybe even taking it a little bit further. When I would compare the description, Bonville's description and also Nadar's description of Baudelaire's apartment to Poe's um, advice on how to decorate, they're, they're very, very closely matched in many ways. In Poe's fiction, in Poe's stories, um, rooms and houses and apartments and also city spaces um, are imbued with a kind of consciousness. Um, and that's where the mystery or the horror in them arises. Uh, women are walled up behind uh, um, apartment walls. Um, um, in in uh, Man of the Crowd, uh, a, a peculiar being sits in a cafe just inside a plate glass window, which were then new at the beginning of the 19th century, plate glass windows until the moment of dusk when people flood into the streets and then he, um, he, he obsessively plunges into the crowd and lets it carry him hither and, and thither so that he becomes a kind of spirit of the crowd or a kind of spirit of a certain new experience of city space. Um, the, the massive crowds of the 
of the, the new modern city, um, the, uh, the new experiences of uh, transparency and um, the new kinds of visibility that became possible because of plate glass, because of mirrors, because of gas, lighting, all of that. Mm. And that's something that Benjamin talks about lots in, um, in the arcades project. Right. So that's something Baudelaire was was closely tracking in in Poe's work, um, both in terms of interior spaces and um, and city spaces. Um, in fact, Baudelaire claimed in I'm not sure if it was a letter or a journal entry that when he first read um, Poe as a young man he had the thorough and profound inner experience that he had himself had written the works of Poe that he was then reading, Hmm. which very ironically, I myself had that experience while reading Baudelaire, not yet then having learned that Baudelaire had had that experience of Mm Poe. So there's a kind of transmission I think that um, is a spatial transmission um, and is also uh, a stylistic transmission. And this transmission needs a a site and 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 a system of surfaces in order to uh, enter consciousness, in order to uh, e- erupt into um, perception, which is you know that that's what's happening in the um, in in the court to Hazel Brown when she's looking across the courtyard and and meets the gaze of the young man across the courtyard, and the description of the young man across the courtyard basically is a description of a painting of Baudelaire. Mm. Um, as a young man mm. so these these spaces are also the places where the singularity or the propriety of consciousness and of um, authorship of writing um, gets messed up breaks down dissolves mm. and also where the linearity of, of time breaks down. Hmm. I think it's so interesting how these certain particular states of consciousness can be in, integrally tied to certain technologies. You mentioned plate glass. We know that the arcades themselves in Paris were made of iron. Yeah. And it was a novel construction that then facilitated a whole new form of public life. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about Flannery now, moving through the city, um, roving and observing at a distance, I mean, it's a very romantic idea, to me at least, in light of how urban life and public life especially in 
in very recent times has moved online. Mm. And I wonder, I mean, you have an Instagram account. Yeah. <laughs> what are you interested in, in novel forms of technology and the way they, they continue to, um, I guess, influence or tamper with our consciousness? Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> it's a big, <laughs> maybe that was yeah. too open-ended a question, but I guess the, what's, what's in my mind when I ask that question, I think has more to do with trying to understand what it means for a young person to move through the city today mm -hmm. versus what it meant for you as a young woman to mm -hmm. move through Paris in the 1980s. Yeah. And the kind of spaces that gave themselves or lent themselves to you as a tool for capturing a certain consciousness or mm -hmm. describing a certain way of being. I wonder if those tools have changed or if that's, if that's a, a question you have now. I mean, I just don't understand where the city has gone. I feel like it's, it's no longer the city as we understood it. And mm. um, I mean, you're, you're physically removed from the city uh, where you're living now, but then also the fact that our lives are increasingly spent in social spaces online as opposed to on the street. Well, there's the the overriding and profoundly aggressive fact of neoliberalism is um, changed the meaning of um, spaces in the city. Um, I think a big difference between the early to mid 1980s city that I experienced and which I tried to describe by means of the character Hazel Brown in Paris was that it was a, a it was a city where you could be poor um, without being an utterly abject outsider. Um, now in most big cities, there's um, an utter divide and that that's between um, homeless migrants and, um, and people who are financially installed in such a way that they have some um, freedom. Um, you didn't see homeless people very much on 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 streets in in the 1980s or even through the 90s in my experience um the rise of homelessness in tandem with the spread of uh, the neoliberal um political sickness <laughs> is um i think is one of the overwhelming um overwhelmingly vast changes in um in in urbanism who gets to live in cities in what way who is criminalized in a city and who is not criminalized i think that that is a much 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 bigger um um reality 
than what kinds of gadgets we have and um, how, how these gadgets may change or not change our relationships and our experience to space. I mean, um, the book, the codex, you know, is a pocket sized gadget that gives you an exit out of, out of, out of, out of any place your body might happen to be in, you know, we're, 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 uh, We've been virtual beings um, for a long time. You know, <laughs> Apple did not invent that. I think it, well, it's very complicated, isn't it? I was going to say, I, th I think it might seem more important than it is, but then as soon as I began to think that, I realized that all of these devices are surveillance devices as well. Um, and have inserted the algorithm into our consciousness mm -hmm. of representation and, and desire um, is um, sort of short-circuited in more and more efficient ways. But all of these things are the miniaturizations of kinds of institutionality that have been going on since the rise of capitalism in the Renaissance. The way that the institution, whether that's capital, church, government, um, occupies and forms and transforms the consciousness of individuals is, it's, it's a very long story. Mm -hmm. Um, there are perhaps fewer ways to bypass it currently, or there may seem to be fewer ways to bypass it. Um, I'm interested in, I guess, as a way of, of drawing this conversation to a close and following points you've just been making. Um, I mean, there's a suggestion earlier on, which I agree with that, um, this fixation, you know, with technology, just maybe a bit of a red herring. I mean, I love the point you made that we are all and have always been virtual beings. For me, what's interesting is this point you made about um, who has permission, I guess, as an embodied person, not as a an avatar or a handle on a social media account, but who has permission to be in public space um, and who is seen in public space. Um, and I think it's in a kind of abstract way bringing me to this moment at the end of a novel um, where again you train your descriptive powers on an individual who throughout history uh, the history, I guess, that the, the novel is focused on remained invisible, remained hiding in plain sight. And I mean, she's not in a public space necessarily, but she's in a painting. You're that speaking is of Jeanne Duval. Jeanne Duval, um, Baudelaire's partner, romantic partner. Uh, she's in a painting in a prominent public gallery, but I think had up until this point, this moment of description, remained invisible. Can you tell me more about Duval, your decision to, as an author, as a writer, to 
to train your your focus on her and somehow enliven mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. Um, just so people know who don't already know who Jeanne Duval was, um, she was, um, like you said, Baudelaire's partner, mistress, lover for something like 20 years. So since they were both very young, she was of um, mixed cultural background and probably she might've been from Haiti. Was It's not clear her, her I, all records of her birth and identity um, were destroyed by various means. Um, as was most of her, as was all of her correspondence to Baudelaire by Baudelaire's mother after his death. Um, she is in the novel um, by means of two paintings. Um, one of them is, and both of these paintings are by painters who Baudelaire was close to um, in various ways. One is the painting by Courbet, Gustave Courbet, uh, called The Artist in His Studio. Um, And that's the huge uh, canvas that is hung now in a sort of open hallway of the uh, Musée d'Orsay. And uh, Courbet paints himself in the middle of his studio space, working on a canvas, um, painting a, a landscape. Um, just behind him, there's um, a naked white lady kind of holding some garments up to somewhat cover her body. And all around these two central figures are depictions of many, many different people who were part of Courbet's life. Um, so there were, you know, money lenders, a priest, um, poor people like Irish wet nurses, um, all on one side of the, of the painting, the left-hand side. And on the right-hand side were art critics and other artists and writers. And in the lower right-hand corner, uh, the figure of Baudelaire, who is kind of checked out. He's reading a book. It's like he's 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 uh, he's scrolling through Instagram, <laughs> while the other people are are more or less engaged with Courbet, Courbet's sort of central um, activities, and um, behind the figure of Baudelaire, who's perhaps half perched on a table. It's a little hard to make out because it's it's very shadowy. Um, behind him is the remnant, if you look very closely, a kind of dark halo, I'd have to say, of a figure that has been painted out. And that figure um, was um, um, a portrait of, of Jeanne Duval. In the interim between the painting of this canvas and its um, public exhibition in this um, kind of circus-like hangar space that Courbet organized for himself, Jeanne Duval's figure got painted out. And so it's a matter of um, 
deep interest among some art historians and some literary historians uh, to sort out when she got painted out and why, who, who decided to paint her out. Um, some say Baudelaire didn't want her in there. Some say that the, uh, the critic Jean Fleury, who is, um, was a very powerful um, art critic writer and one of Courbet's patrons for the exhibition of the, of the painting, um, he, he, he fronted some of the money to, for Courbet to, uh, to rent this space and show it. Some say that Jean Fleury um, um, insisted that Jeanne Duval get, get painted out. Other people think, you know, Courbet himself made the decision. You know, why would Jeanne Duval get painted out? Because she wasn't white. The fact is, none of us really know um, exactly um, who who insisted that Jeanne Duval should no longer be there. But what we have now is her trace in this painting. If you know to look for her, she's there. Um, and she is pointed out in many of the books about this painting and about Baudelaire. Uh, Roberto Colasso, for example, his book, The Baudelaire Folly, as, as well as um, a lot of um, Courbet um, criticism. They, they talk about it. But interestingly, in the museum labeling, in the pedagogical labeling in the Musée d'Orsay, there's no mention of her. So um, unless you're already filled in on the story, um, you, you won't see her. If you know to go looking for her, she's definitely there. Um, so because my way of bringing these two time frames together, the time frame of Hazel Brown's life in the early 80s and the time frame of Baudelaire's youth in the 1840s and 50s in Paris um, was by means of paintings, which are still in Paris and which were paintings that were part of Baudelaire's life. Um, part of my way of researching the novel was to go and look at these paintings, the paintings that Baudelaire looked at, um, paintings by his friends, um, and to write descriptions of them in much the way that I, I use descriptions of um, hotel rooms. And then to let these descriptions of paintings function as sort of pivots or thresholds um, where the, the, the two narratives could connect or um, come into relationship. So as, as soon as I started looking at the paintings and then found out about Jeanne Duvel and this story of her paint being painted out in the Courbet painting, um, I was completely shocked that here, I, you know, I, I thought I was being a, a good looker, you know, <laughs> I thought I was, uh, you know, I thought I was, I was trying to train myself to see everything about this painting. And yet I, I had not the slightest inkling that there was, um, that there was her painted out figure there. So partially my, my, my intense curiosity was just based on my shock. But then there's the mystery that opens up, you know, why and when. Um, and then there is um, 
A second painting in which Jean Duvel does actually appear, and that's a in a painting by um, Manet. And um, it's um, it was a painting that hung in in the clinic room, uh, the hospital room that Baudelaire died in. Um, and then after Baudelaire's death, it went back to Manet's studio and um, was cataloged there as uh, under the title Baudelaire's Mistress. Um, and that painting, it does not live in Paris now. It's, I, th I think it's in uh, Hungary. I'm not sure, I can't recall. But it was part of a traveling show that first um, was at Columbia University in New York and then came to the Orsay on the black model in European painting. So as I was finishing the novel, that show came to the Orsay. So I was able to spend time in front of Manet's painting of Jean Duvel, which was the painting that Baudelaire um, died beside. Mm. And um, so I end my narrative with a description of that painting. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that description, you write, this is Jean Duvel. She's a philosopher. She was painted by Manet in 1862, a year after Baudelaire had dedicated to her a copy of the second edition of Le Fleur de Mal. Hommage à ma très chère Féline. Now I meet her image in Paris on June 13th, 2019. The linden trees are in flower. I'm 57 years old. I'm thinking about the immense, silent legend of any girl's life. She's leaning back, observing. There's a beautiful reversal now um, where Duval in the painting is the one who's looking. And you can only imagine it's the gaze of someone who's endured um, this kind of silencing we're becoming more awake to as a culture. Mm -hmm. And there's also in this idea about the immense and silent legend of any girl's life that you describe. Um, I think there's real potency in, in understanding the potential of these hidden narratives. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe this is where in your own way you're kind of tracing out your project or the project of any writer. I mean, I'm kind of grasping here, but I feel, I feel a real pull towards this idea of these immense and silent um, legends. You know, in my own project in interviewing people, um, there is always, I think, increasingly for me, this understanding that um, there is so much hiding in plain sight yeah. And there is, a, there is so much that remains um, unexposed or undiscovered. Yes. And um, there are so many... Um, well, I feel like the, the, the painted out image of Tuval kind of acts as a... It's a metaphor for this longing <laughs> that we have as describers. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it was an actual painting out um, 
um, an actually um, aggressive erasure um, and exclusion of her representation from <clears throat> a time and place, a history. Um, so I don't want to sort of dissolve the aggression of, uh, of that act of erasure um, by metaphorizing it. Um, but I think that the recognition of the potency of the erasure and similar erasures um, can signal a space where new kinds of description can open up. If the dominant narratives of coming into intellectual consciousness, of um, um, aesthetic community and, and uh, youthful intellectual life in a city, um, the gendering of that life have in, in most cases continue to operate among um, often debilitatingly exclusive lines. Um, what happens if we can lean back and make a space for what's unsaid? I think, well, first of all, I want to say that um, I'm coming at this project with, you know, quite, quite a lot of privilege. I'm, I'm a woman, yeah, but I'm a, a white woman from a settler colonial culture who has not experienced um, um, individually or more generally culturally even a, a, a tiny, tiny um, shred of what um, of, 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 of the violence and denigration and erasure that many, many, many people on this planet are experiencing all the time. However, we, each of us, I think, have, have a hidden history in our family, in our consciousness, in our stories, in our experience. And in devising ways to represent, to describe hidden experience, um, and in the case of this novel and the character Hazel Brown, it's really very simple. It's not a massive tragic um, operation we're talking about. We're talking about a young, underprivileged white girl coming into intellectual self-consciousness along, alongside her questioning of her sexualization. That's really the full story I have to offer. Um, but 
even within the historical specificity and the undoubted um, privilege of that story, there are still parts of consciousness that go unsaid that have not have not yet found the language, the representational modes that can open them further. And I think that it's 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 just it's it's really the only thing that interests me as as a writer. I mean it's a it's a not so deep of a secret that there's a quite a lot of autobiographical material um, that I use to structure this character, Hazel Brown. Um, but I made a choice to place her in a part of life where um, she had not had any institutional access to any form of um, collective discourse. Um, my editors were interested in me sort of bringing in information about my own life in Vancouver in the 90s when we were all beginning to publish. That to me was not interesting at all. What I was interested in is I'm, I'm interested in really what's, what's, what's unpublishable. <laughs> you know, what happens um, before any person reaches a threshold of self-representation. Um, and I feel that that threshold is more and more the place I want to, uh, I want to hang out as where I want to be doing my work, you know, in that, in that, that stinky inner shoot <laughs> of the cheap hotel. <laughs> <laughs> where the concierges hang their rancid rags. You know, that's, that's the space I want to be working in. I want to be working in the unspeakable space. Lisa, thank you so much. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word, and why not leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it? Thanks to Lisa Robertson and to the Architecture Foundation for their support. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again next week. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.